From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Vine Pair Podcast Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations in our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we're moving forward as a drinks business during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Rachel Berry, Master Blender of Scotch Whiskeys for Brown Foreman. Dr. Berry, thank you so much for joining me. Or can I call you Rachel? Of course. Please call me Rachel. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My, my, my father and my brother both have PhDs, and so I'm so used to calling people doctor that... uh. It just it was like a, a default, like oh, Doctor Teeter. So, but Rachel, it's it's much easier to call you Rachel. So, thank you. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> thank you very much for asking. <laughs> so, where uh, where do we find you today? Oh, I'm I'm at home in Edinburgh, um, okay. in Scotland. So, um, which isn't far from our our head office, um, in Edinburgh. So, yeah. And how are things in Edinburgh right now? Um, things in Edinburgh are fine, fine. Um, we ha- we are social distancing, and we are um, we have all the practice- good practices in place. And um, I think you know, um, yeah, I- my family and you know everyone at work is fit and healthy. Well, and Edinburgh is such an amazing cocktail city. Uh, are are bars reopening? Are they open? And what does that look like? Yeah, bars are open, but they have to close by ten p.m. Okay. Um. So we have that kind of curfew, um, the COVID curfew by 10 p.m. at the moment. Um. But um, they are opening. Um. And they, yeah, they are open. So amazing. Yeah. So um, tell tell us a little bit about sort of your role at, at Brown Foreman and, and the three uh whiskeys that you work on. Okay. Well, I I joined three and a half years ago. Um. My my career spans nearly 29 years in whiskey, but um, I came to Brown Foreman three and a half years ago and really um to um to 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 bring the the distilleries to life the whiskies to life to um to uh create new portfolios to to develop the wood strategies for maturation um and to to uh to, to really um bring the the whiskies to new consumers so that that all sounds really interesting can you tell me a little bit about what you what you mean when you say like you know bring the whiskies to life or um you know work on the wood maturation yeah. so i think a lot of people aren't familiar with the role of a master blender unless they might be like oh well also you work at two at you know single malt distilleries but i think we're also we're used to like master blender when it comes to blended scotch so yeah. if you could explain a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis that would be super interesting well it's extremely varied it's probably the most varied <laughs> job in the whole industry because you have to know everything um obviously i've done a lot of research into flavor um over the past 29 years and you really have to know as much as possible you're I'm still learning but right from the barley in the field right through to the bottle going down the line and right out into the markets. So I have a very, very job. And, you know, three and a half years ago when I started, it was analysing, you know, thousands of casks, um, nosing, it's mostly sensory. So the, the master blender role is very much about the world of flavour, about creating flavour, about every step in the process that nurtures that flavour that um, then delivers it to the consumer consistently. I'm, I'm really a guardian of... Uh, uh, a custodian of spirit quality in many ways, um, and, and my nose is my greatest asset. Um, in addition to that, it's um, deciding which wood the spirit's going to go into. So okay. obviously in the Scotch industry, we can use so many different woods, really a world of flavour, you know, everything from US bourbon casks to sherry casks to uh, marsala casks to red wine casks, whatever. You know, our definition means that we can, I, I can get to travel the world or have done previously um, to source many different um, types of casts to um, to enrich the flavor of the single malts. 
Amazing. And so, I mean, first of all, question, do you have an insurance policy on your nose? Uh, uh, I have life insurance, um, <laughs> but not specifically on my nose, but maybe I you should. Know, you know, you hear of all the athletes that have insurance policies on their, you know, their shooting, their, their shooting arm or their throwing arm or whatever. So, you know, had to ask. And so obviously you, you as you said, you, you basically take the liquid from the point of distillation through to bottling, but even the sourcing of the grains, et cetera. How has that changed for you or, or what adaptations have you had to make because of COVID? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it really kind of hit us um, in March time. So um, into April, there was a pause um, whilst uh, I think the whole world kind of took stock then of of, ever, of what was happening and, and just paused in terms of the operation. Um, and then we, we started up with um, lots of uh, practices in place. So um, social distancing, um, the visitor centres closed, um, production started up again um, really after a few weeks of not being able to distill. Um, because in a distillery, people are distanced. You know, you've got yeah. a stillman, you know, a far distance from a mashman, and similarly with the warehouseman. So, um, you know, we were able to start up again, um, just at a, a slower pace. Um, and then in the um, in the bottling area, you know, it's it's social distancing, and it was um, it was a slower pace, slower pace. But we've still been able to continue producing. Um, with all the, the the PPE and and all the um, protective protective gear. But you mentioned that you know a lot of your job is also sourcing the casks that you finish the the single malt in. Has that impacted your job at all? Because obviously you were saying you traveled a good bit. Um, or do you have you know so, you know places that you source the casks from now that you kind of trust and you know what you're getting from a lot of those places? So you're not there's not as much of a need to travel as maybe you you would have in the beginning three and a half years ago when you first started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been in the industry <laughs> looking at wood, um, researching right. <laughs> oak for for you know three nearly three decades. So um, I know most of the key players and have have those relationships. So um, yeah, you know, you can, you know, I can I can order casks and and whatnot um, from home. Um, got those relationships. You know, we just need to basically um, agree the quality, the specification. And um, get them on a container and uh, shipped to Scotland um, and then filled. Um, so yeah, so it is continuing. Although I do must, I must admit, I do like my trips um, yeah. <laughs> to Louisville, to Louisville, to the Brown Forman Cooperage, um, and um, to uh, to the, the you know Jack Daniels and to Woodford Reserve. Um, right. So I've not been for for a year, um, and also to Jerez, to to um, Seville in Spain, another one of my favourite places. So in a normal year, I would tend to go there um, twice a year. Um, so um, I'm hoping for next year. <laughs> well, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Jerez and uh, and Spain, and you know, in particular. So I know it's the 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 Glendronach, right? That's all of the is very much known for its its sherry cask finishing, um, correct? Correct, Glendronach, right back to 1826 when the when the distillery was founded by James Allardyce. It was it was firstly in cherry cask because that was what was brought into United Kingdom from 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 Spain as shipping casks, and they were bottled. And it was you know sherry was bottled in in, in the UK, um, and then the cask went for for Glendronach. So yes, Glendronach, I spend a lot of my time, uh, a, a, a huge amount of my time on um, the quality of the sherry cask. So, um, you know, we specify Spanish oak, um, which is very, very rare, very expensive. 
Um, and we also, um, you know, the, the, the cast are toasted. They're filled with sherry. Ola Rosso and Pedro Jimenez are the ones that I celebrate for Glendronach, especially the Pedro Jimenez, um, the king of sherries. Um, and, and it just marries so beautifully with our robust Highland style um, to give us, you know, a real um, full-bodied single malt um, that's also that's elegant amazing. and fruity. So. So when the when the casks come in, they're not drained at all. You basically, I mean, they've been drained of the sherry, obviously, but there's probably so, still residual sherry in the cask, correct? Well, you know, it just goes into the stage. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, <laughs> there's a, there's an interaction between the wood and the the sherry, and the sherry sherry within the stave is not actually sherry. It's it's kind of it's sherry that's reacted with the wood. So, so it's um it's kind of um a way of seasoning the wood for us as well. Amazing. So, so one of the, another whiskey professional I was talking to recently, and I'm curious for your thoughts because you deal so much with sherry, um, had basically said that at this point in time, the whiskey industry is basically what's keeping the sherry industry afloat. That a lot of the the sherry industry is basically just filling casks with sherry in order to supply the massive demand of sherry casks amongst amongst the whiskey industry. Is that something that you've seen as well throughout your career? Is that something that you think is is actually true? Well, I mean, the sherry casks today are the best I've ever seen them. You know, the quality is just unbelievable. You know, it, goes, it takes me back, you know, nearly um, nearly 30 years to the sherry casks in the early 1990s. Um, and the, the, the quality is just, you know, they've really mastered the art <laughs> in Jerez okay. of how to, how to make the perfect sherry cask for um for scotch maturation it's incredible and um you know going back in the day it was the shipping cask that came into um into the uk that were used for for scotch and that practice stopped in 1986 um so the industry had to you know we had to all work together and um, work with um the cooperages and the sherry producers in in Jerez. Um, to to um, create the you know the perfect sherry casks. Um, so yeah, a lot of research. <laughs> and so now, so a lot of so if if I understand you correctly, it seems like a lot of sherry producers are actually producing sherry with the understanding that that cask will be used for scotch down the road. So sort of understanding from the moment that they even get that cask for their own use first that there will be a secondary use. And so they're, they're working with you even before they fill that cask with sherry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is that that is the same as back in the day. Um, although the sherry industry used to reuse their casks a lot. Um, right. And, um, and then they, they shipped to, to the United Kingdom in shipping casks, um, which were actually fresh oak casks. And that's what then went on to be sold into the industry. So it's not too dissimilar from then um, in many, many ways. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the the maturation in sherry, as you, as you noted, came just from the fact that that's what that's the casks that were available. Uh, you know, that's what was shipping to, to the UK. But what is it about sherry casks that you think are so special when it comes to, to scotch maturation. Yeah, I mean, for me, we've got a very defined specification and it's therefore, you know, not every sherry cast the same, you know, it can be right. different oak. We're we very specific in, span, uh, in specifying Spanish oak um, because it is a hybrid of these Quercus Petrea and Quercus Rober. And this gives us a duality of character and that is so important. 
they're also very, it's very, um, you know, thick staves, solid structure, um, and they tend to be made in larger size as well. Um, so around 500 litres in capacity, um, sherry butt or sherry puncheon. So you've got these, these different dynamics going on, and then you've got the sherry. And, um, you know, partly because of the interaction, the reactions with the sherry with the wood, it means that there's lots of the wood left. Um, but the acidity of the sherry has also broken down that wood as well. So um, it, it, there's just loads of chemistry going on um, and it's a very solid cask. So um, it's a very, uh, it tends to give you a very long maturation um, and the casks last a long time. So we could fill them, you know, a couple of times. Um, they also, um, we also keep more of the angel share inside the cask. So it's, that's quite nice with the bigger size of cask. Right. Um, so you're losing less whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in addition to that, you know, I mean, the, the, the main one used to sort of clip was Oloroso. However, with um, Gondronic, you know, I would say we, we, we probably buy the most Pedro Jimenez casks in the industry. That style is just perfect for Glendronic. So um, not all sherry casks are the same. Um, so yeah, Pedro Jimenez gives you this lovely sweetness and elegance and fruit, um, which which is perfect for, you know, Glendronic means Valley of the Brambles and brambles are, you know, like dark fruit berries. Yep. Um, so you can imagine how that would work. And so you you also I don't want to spend all our time talking about Glendronach. You also do work with two other distilleries. Um, so and one of the distilleries, right, is is just about to basically re-release or repackage um, all of its scotches, right? Uh, Benrach. So can you tell me a little bit about that and sort of what the scotches are that you're releasing, and also what that's been like to think about releasing, you know, new scotches during this time that we're all going through. Oh, well, I mean, Ben Riech, when I, when I started at Ben Riech three and a half years ago, really the moment I started, it was like being a child in a sweetie shop because the distillery has the most variety. Um, the name comes from Ben, Little Hill and Riech, which means kind of diversity in terms of the type of farming that was okay. done. It's on the, it's on the, um, the hill that was the Riech farm. And um, I love this because, you know, I've worked in the industry for many years and going to Ben Riech was like, every experience I'd ever had in one distillery <laughs> because Ben Riek makes um, peated um, malt, which is basically sweet and smoky. Um, it also makes a classic orchard fruit, fruit laden style and triple distilled. Um, so we've got these different styles. And then also it's got the most eclectic range of casts, I think, in Speyside and Scotland, because, you know, again, this is part of the explorer in me, um, source casts from Marsala to rum to bourbon to sherry to red wine, um, virgin oak all over the world. And then what I got to do was basically to paint with flavor, to paint with all of that and to create the new range. Um, so that was that was really exciting journey in the past few years. And I've just been talking about it really for the past two weeks. And are you are you basically in terms of you know launching the new range? I, normally, I th- I would assume you would, as we've discussed earlier, you would be traveling, right? You probably would go to a few key markets, talk to you know uh, press like myself, or you would talk to you know bartenders, uh, you know beverage directors, etc. Now you're not doing that. Do you find that a lot of this is now mostly on Zoom and things like that, in which you're trying to talk to as many people as possible? And how do you, how is that different for you? Yeah, well, actually, you know, initially I thought, oh, this is going to be really strange, you know, and it feels a bit artificial. However, I'm absolutely loving it because I'm getting to speak to hundreds of, you know, eventually probably thousands of people (laughs) 
<laughs> from around the world that there's no way I would reach in such a short spell of time. So, you know, one day I could be, um, you know, speaking to people in Singapore or in Taiwan. The next day it could be um, the U.S. and with, with people um, from all over the U.S., you know, from the West right. to the East Coast, you know, all over, as long as I get the timing right. Um, and then, you know, it could be all around Europe as well. So, you know, it's li literally, you know, I don't need to waste time getting on a right. plane I can just you know be in front of people and um, as long as they've got the whiskey as well um, we're we're um, sharing that experience together and I get to take them through the range so it's I've actually reached more people through not traveling that's amazing yeah I mean, yeah I mean there are there are definitely I feel like you know some positives coming out of this in which we are realizing that there's other ways in which we can interact and we can taste liquid and, and get to have conversations with people that actually make the liquid that don't mean us having to travel to where the liquid's made or you having to travel to where we are in order for us to, to connect and really get to know what, you know, goes into making what we're, you know, what's in our glass, which is really, really cool. I mean, I, we've always had this technology available to us. We just haven't taken advantage of it uh, the way that we have now and realize like, oh yeah, this was always here and we probably should use it more. Absolutely. And connect with more people. It's, yes, for it's sure. so enriching, you know, I'm just getting to, you know, I'm almost more culturally aware because I'm, because <laughs> I'm speaking to more people than, yeah. than uh, from all over, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And then getting their feedback as well when they're tasting it and, you know, what they enjoy and, you know, I'm getting that all in quite a short period of time. So it's, you know, it's very enriching for me to, to get that feedback. That makes a lot of sense. So I, I have a question for you that I'd be remiss if I didn't ask because, you know, you are the you know the master blender at a you know scotch portfolio that is owned by one of the most well-known bourbon companies in the world um and you've been in the business for you know you said 27 years which is amazing so i imagine that you've seen sort of the taste profiles especially of the american consumers change right and when you started in the industry bourbon was not what it is now in the us right it was not this behemoth that you know everyone was obsessed with and while i think we like to believe and romanticize that uh, you know everything that's created, other liquids aren't influenced by itself, right? It's just the artistry of the people making it. We have to admit, I would assume that that there is influence. So my question for you is, how have you seen this bourbon boom influence the world of Scotch uh, in the past, let's say, ten years? And maybe not through the the distilleries you even work with specifically, but with other ones, right? I know I've noticed a lot of distilleries now coming out and being very clear. These are bourbon cast finished scotches and that, you know, really trying to go after the bourbon drinker. Um, how has that impacted your day to day in terms of the whiskeys you're creating or has it not at all? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, I mean, I'm, we're particularly lucky in, in having the, um, being part of Brown Foreman because it means that we have access to all these great, you know, Jack Daniels would reserve old Forester casks. Um, and also right. the Virgin Oak because Brown Foreman's got its own, um, you know, uh, cooperage. So uh, the the same casks actually go to Jack Daniels. We get some for Ben Riek too, you know, um, that haven't even been filled with bourbon. So, so that's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, Obviously, it means that we've got more more cast to pick from. We can experiment more with, uh, you know, Woodford Reserve casts or um, rye rye barrels. You know, that previously held Jack Daniel's rye or, um, you know, the, the Saramash. You know, different different um, 
variants, I suppose, of of each of these two, since there's more, been more experimentation right. in bourbon. So that means we can experiment more too. Um, and equally, you know, with the, the oak, there's been lots of work done on the oak um, for Jack Daniels uh, and Woodford. So I can tap into that expertise with different toasting and charring levels and, and whatnot as well. So, so it's a real um, collaboration there. Um, and I think, you know, people, um, we, we can use more first fill bourbon casks than ever before, um, which which is great for malt because it just brings out all of its um, sweetness and fruitiness um, and really um, dials that up. So I think it's great for, for the quality of single malt, you know, we, we rely on the, the quality of the, the bourbon industry as well. So do you think that the the rise of bourbon in the U.S. is influencing the flavor profiles of scotch or influencing what uh, especially an American consumer is looking for when it comes to scotch? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think with with scotch, historically, um, same with everywhere, actually, there was more blended scotch drinkers um, in the world. So, um, you know, the big blends. And really, um, it's actually more like wine in some ways, single malt, I would say. Um, and the consumer is now waking up to the, um, the richness of taste that you get from a single malt that you perhaps don't get from a blend. Um, so I think, you know, th- there are American consumers definitely gravitating towards um, single malts more because they've got more sweetness, the, the creaminess, the, the mouthfeel, the um the the fruitiness everything is is really um is 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 rich and and obviously bourbons have a rich flavor as well they're not the same <laughs> they're definitely very right. different and i would say we've got um a greater diversity in many ways of style going from you know you know really quite full bodied smoky whiskies to extremely fruity um whiskies um and of course we can use different casks so i think the world has opened up to flavor and the flavor of whiskey as a whole, whether it's right. American or, or Scotch. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And for those listeners who are, who are curious as to when you say the, the single malts are, you know, f- you know, fruity or, you know, more round, et cetera. Is that because they are just malt and when you have a blend, you are blending in grain whiskey as well. Yeah, I mean your your blended Scotch um, is a is a blend of um, grain whiskey, which has been distilled in a continuous still, which you know it's a big big uh, tall still, um, alembic alembic still, um, and single malt Scotch whiskey is um, distilled in copper pot stills. Um, as similar to Woodford, Woodford Reserves obviously got the copper pot stills, but with single malt, we're using 100% malted barley, and um, you know, barley is arguably the most complex material in the world that you can brew with and you can um, distill with, because um, it gives you a very, very, very wide range of of different flavors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything from you know orchard fruit to dark fruit to um to you know biscuity flavors and then when you peat it of course over a fire um as we we do with um some of ben Rick, you know in our smoke season we we use peated malt and um because it's in space side it has this really sweet smokiness so i think especially um the bourbon drinker is going to love it because it's more like a sweet barbecue than it is like sea salt 
So um, it's quite different, ah. quite different. So um, yeah, I'm really excited for what people in the in the states um, think about the um, the Bendrix, the Smoky Ten, and the the Smoky Twelve. Um, but we also um, have have the in the new range the original Ten, and we have a new twelve years old as well, which I think. Um, um, the consumers will also love because it, it just is, is it has the richness of a 12 years old, you know, it, uh, right. with age, you, you do get a richness of character that, um, is, is difficult to, um, replicate it. Well, it's impossible to replicate any other way. That's really cool. So I have one last question for you. That's a, a kind of a hot button. I just want your, in, in uh, your own opinion. Um, I asked this last week to, um, the, the founder of Jefferson's bourbon. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think as well. We've had this question from Vine Pair readers as well as listeners of the podcast in the past. Is there such a thing? So we, we've pri- we prize age when it comes to whiskey, right? And you see lots of people saying, oh, you know, this is 24 years old or this is 36 years old or whatever. Is there such a thing as a whiskey being too old? The If it's in good wood and it's an exceptional spirit, there's not not, not such a thing as a whiskey being too old. I think um, it's all to do with the quality at the end of the day. But if you get, you know, an exceptional Glendronach, Benriac or Glenglassa in quality wood, top quality spirits, you know, it's 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 just going to be it's like the Holy Grail. You know, it's 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 um, um, there's a um, there's a certain um, elixir um, type character that develops with age. Um, so in a good, good oak cask, um, it's going to give you, you know, really, really, um, deliciously, you know, syrupy, um, and and concentrated flavor that, you know, you've never, you've never experienced before. Um, but yeah, and and, and in a, in a cask and, you know, a poor quality cask, it's obviously not going to be quite so great. Right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time uh, today to chat with me about everything you're up to and also giving us a little bit of update on how things are going in the Scotch industry uh, in Scotland now that we're all facing the same uh, you know, COVID-19 and what's happening in Edinburgh. I really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you so much. No, thank you very much for, for inviting me on. And um, I would just say to everyone, you know, good health um, and stay well. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now, for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Eric Adusi, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.